good morning, Life Church. Good morning to all of you who are joining us for church online this morning. Welcome, welcome. It's great to have you. I hope you're having a great Sunday. Maybe we can make it a little bit better. Uh, we're continuing our series called One Story, working our way all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And today we find ourselves in a place called the Song of Solomon, also known as the Song of Songs. And that's where we'll pick up today. So chapter one there, fasten your seatbelts. This one's gonna get weird. <laughs> it's different, this is a very different book. Let me just say a word about the cast of characters in this book. The central characters are the groom, who is come, sometimes called the lover, and a woman who is called the beloved. Um, and you'll notice that if you were to read this on your own, as you go, there are captions there that tell you who's speaking. Now those captions are not found in the original Hebrew. They're supplied there by interpreters to help us understand whose voice is talking. Uh, there's a lot of imagery here, and as often happens in poetry, they don't stop to tell you who it is that's speaking or explain the images. So you gotta stay dialed in. Now here's the general movement you'll see as we go. Uh, chapter one through chapter three is kind of anticipation. Picture a couple that is madly in love, cannot wait to get married. And then it's kind of a poetic, stylized description of a wedding. And then the last few chapters are about their uh, relationship afterwards. Uh, but let me just say a quick word about how to take, how to receive this message. We've got a blend of people that are watching today, uh, watching this message. Uh, some are single, some are married, some are single again. Uh, but there is something for all of us to, to learn, no matter what stage of life we may find ourselves. All right, so Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse two, just for the fun of it, let's read this first phrase of the first verse out loud together, can we? Here's how it goes. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. This is not Leviticus, friends. We're in a different section of the Old Testament now. I mean, who's talking here, the man or the woman? Well, it's the woman, and here's why I point this out. We often think of mid, uh, women in the Middle East, especially the ancient Middle East. We think about the burqas and the veils and the long robes. We, robes. We, we think of it all as being sort of prudish. But as we go through this, you will see that the woman has a level of desire and passion that is every bit as strong as the man's. And God's, God saw so much of this, he thought so much of this, that he wanted to put it in his scriptures. Now, over the years, I have sometimes heard people say that this book is really just an allegory of God's love for the church. And generally, people who say that have not read it very closely. I mean, certainly there are verses that can parallel God's love for us, and God can speak to, uh, to us through this, absolutely. But you can't escape the obvious. It's a celebration of love, and it is unlike anything else found in the Bible. It just starts out in this very first section, right in there with kissing. This is a raw, un, unabashed, uninhibited celebration of romance and attraction between a man and a woman. No, now elsewhere in scripture, you'll find almost every other book, there are warnings and there are cautions and there are examples of what happens when people mishandle sexuality. And those things are all very, very important, but you won't find that in this book, no. This book talks about a passion that's to be lived out in marriage and expressed in a way that honors God but it can be expressed in this book with a directness and intensity that at times can be, frankly, uh, embarrassing or awkward. All right, let's move to verse three. It says, your name is like perfume. Your name is like perfume. She's captivated by his name. And that happens with attraction. 
You might remember, if you're a little bit older, back when I was a kid, if a girl had a crush on you, she would doodle her first name and your last name and put them together. I don't think people do that anymore. Um, married names have gotten a little complicated, too many hyphens or something. I don't know. We don't do that much anymore. But a name is much more than just what you are called. A name in scripture, as you know, generally refers to someone's identity or their reputation, maybe their character. So part of what this woman is saying is that his name is like a pleasing fragrance to her. In other words, she's drawn to the character of this man. Yes, she's attracted to him, but she likes what he's all about. That's more. Now you'll find throughout the whole book this very, very deep combination of tremendously powerful physical attraction and equally powerful attraction to the person's character. And I want to say, just in passing, that to every person watching, no matter what your age may be, be real, real careful about the kind of person you give your heart to and examine their character. Know their name, if you know what I'm saying. Some of the saddest moments I know, some of the saddest things, stories that I know, and you as well, probably involved some folks that got involved in a very, very passionate attachment to somebody, but it was someone with an unhealthy or unstable character, maybe untrustworthy. So get to know their name, what they're all about. And if you're married to someone with a good name, with a good character, just tell them how grateful you are and how much that means to you. All right, we're going to find out a little bit more about the identity of the groom here in chapter 1, verse 7. Here's what it says. This is, again, the woman, the beloved, talking. She says, Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. So this tells us that he is a shepherd of some kind. He's, not obvi he's obviously not a real wealthy guy, but she wants to be with him. And in verse number eight, he speaks now. He says, if you don't know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep. It's kind of a playful little back and forth there. And then he goes on in verse nine. He says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare amongst Pharaoh's chariot horses. I understand calling a woman a horse in our day is not real high on the compliment list. But because Pharaoh's horses were prized above all others, this would have been taken as a real nice thing to say. Now, notice a striking thing in this book. It's what might be called the delight factor in the conversation of the man and the woman who love each other. Behind their words is a deep, deep desire to build one another up. And uh, you can tell when you see people that are attracted to one another, when they're talking and they're in conversation, they're usually smiling at each other. There's a delight factor at work and they want to build each other up and they get creative in doing this. But these are the words we read here. These are the words of a generous heart. And that's noteworthy right there. Because to have a generous heart uh, is just such an attractive thing. But a character that is stingy or caustic, biting or critical, it's just so unattractive, isn't it? All right, in chapter two, this is the woman again. She speaks here in, in verse one. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Sounds a little cocky at first, isn't it? I'm a rose of Sharon, look at me. But Old Testament scholars tell us that a rose in ancient times was not at all like how we think of it in our day. It's not something you get from a florist shop. It was common and not a valuable flower at all. It wasn't noted for its beauty or its expense. So when she calls herself a lily of the valley, that's a plain everyday blossom, something that would be picked up and smelled and then tossed aside by just about anyone. 
So these are actually kind of modest words, and she's saying, in essence, I'm not really the hottie around town, I'm just kind of an average Karen. <laughs> and it's, there's kind of a playful aspect for the banter that's going on here. And it's kind of a game between the man and the woman. Now, when this is overdone, I recognize that it can be sort of manipulative or fishing for compliments, that kind of stuff. But this is really a playful way of flirting here. She's saying, I'm just a lily. And he's saying, yeah, lily among thorns. Like all others are thorns compared to you, my lily. Now, there's another aspect of the relationship here. Uh, my darling that he calls her is a pet name that he uses nine times in this book. And uh, he has a few others that he uses for her as well. And she's got some names that she uses for him too. Now, contemporary psychology notes that strong marriage relationships actually create what's called a culture of two. That's a great phrase, isn't it? A culture of two. It's expressed by lots of different things, namely having kind of special names for each other. And this psychologist noted that almost every great strong marriage uh, does what this couple in the Bible does. They have special names for each other. And a lot of people watching here, you may have special names for your spouse and one for another. Based on a lot of research, nick the nicknames for each other tend to come from one of three categories, food, animals, body parts. Food, animals, or body parts. Um, and most are things like sugar and honey and things like that. And sometimes we combine them. Sugar lips, honey bear, things like that. Now, C.S. Lewis writes about this in a book of his called The Four Loves, The Four Loves. He talks about how you ever, you notice that couples that are in love tend to talk in baby talk sometimes with each other. And he notes a scientist that did some research on this. He said that there are certain animals out in nature that do the very same thing. When courting one another, they make infantile sounds, like sounds that these animals only make when they're babies. And look what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, the reason for this is that it's the tenderest language we know. So it's used to express a tender heart. Here's a question if you're married. Do you relate to your spouse with a tender heart or a cold heart? Do your words tend to fall from tender lips or from cold, calculating, impatient, critical lips? Do you do what this man and woman do? They give sincere, authentic praise. So do you speak words that honor and give value? I mean, do you treasure secrets together that only the two of you are in on? Do you create traditions amongst the two of you? Do you, do you have date nights and things like that? Well, one thing that God has established in our lives is what we call, Bonnie and I call it the stool, the stool. It's a three-legged thing, you know, like a stool, three legs, that gives our life foundation and stability. And those three legs are first working out together and then time in God's word together and then discussing and praying about what God is leading us through, through all this together. So it's one, two, three legs. We do it five days a week, five days a week. We do it all together. Is it a significant investment? You better believe it, it is. But the payoff is worth its weight in gold. It brings a unity that just is amazing to me. All right, let's keep going. Chapter two, verse 16, it's a classic phrase from the Song of Solomon here. The woman says, my lover is mine and I am his. This is such an important thought. It gets repeated almost verbatim two more times. To this day, it's often used by Jewish brides in weddings. They're saying, we belong to each other, not in, too, in not an unhealthy way or a way in which we become controlling or jealous with one another. 
No, this is a covenant. We learned about covenants in the Old Testament a number of weeks back. It's a covenant between a man and a woman. Now God's covenant with us is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the marital covenant here is, my lover is mine and I am his. Now when you say those words to another person in marriage, in essence you're saying, I recognize that there is not much you can count on in this world. Your health may go south and your pension fund may collapse and your career may never look like you hoped it would. And your appearance will change over the years. But you can count on one thing. As long as this heart is beating, I am there for you. I'm there for you. All right, now the next section we'll go into from chapter three, uh, starting in verse six. Now the first section was kind of anticipation, kind of a build up here. And now they, uh, they come to verses six and seven. Here's what it says, there's a shift here. It says, who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage. And it goes on with a description of the scene. And now look down at, at verse 11. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown on the day of his wedding. All right, now, there are, there's some disagreement among scholars about how to understand this wedding scene. Some people say that Solomon is the literal bridegroom that they're talking about here. I think that's unlikely for a couple of reasons. The first is we know from chapter one, verse seven, that the groom was a shepherd. And of course, Solomon was not. Solomon was the son of the king. He was son of King David and he grew up in the palace. But also because a major theme of this book is the mutual exclusiveness of the man and the woman. I am my lover's and he is mine. Anybody remember how many wives Solomon had? Was it more than one? It was 700 and he had 300 rentals. They were called concubines back then. And it never says, the text never says, I am my beloved and he is mine. Well, me and 999 other girls. Doesn't say that. I think much more likely Solomon is kind of a code name for the groom here. And poetry often works that way. And the pageantry and the court images that are, that are brought about in this writing expresses something really, really important. It's kind of saying he may be just a shepherd, but in the eyes of the one who loves him, he's a king. Like to me, he's a king. And this is not just an illusion. It's not just smoke and mirrors. See, in God's eyes, the world is not divided up into important people like Solomon and CEOs, and then there's unimportant people like shepherds and me. No, in God's eyes, everybody bears his image. In God's eyes, everybody was made to reign with him. And this, we get a little bit of what God sees when he looks at us through the eyes of Christ. And when we really love somebody, we can see the ragged shepherd, but we see the king a little bit too, don't we? All right, so many people in our world are so very, very good at seeing faults. And if you're in a real close relationship, you can see their faults all day long if you want to. The key is, what are we looking for and what are we looking at? What is it you're, you're seeking out as you relate and as you look for in your spouse? And your peace, your happiness, your joy has a lot to do with how you view your significant other. All right, chapter four, verse one. This is the lover speaking to his beloved, listen. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. It's beautiful imagery there, saying the, your eyes behind your veil, they're like doves. Uh, doves in that culture were prized, uh, especially for their color. When they were up in the sky, up in the sun, they looked kind of a translucent gray. It was very striking and appealing to look at. 
When you look into somebody's eyes, it's a very intimate thing, isn't it? It's a soul gaze. When you look into someone's eyes, you're kind of looking into their soul. And their eyes will tell you if they're happy, if they're sad, if they've been beaten down by life. So if you're deeply attached to someone, it could be a spouse, might be a child or a very close friend, you know the color of their eyes because you want to know about their soul. And this man has looked very, very deeply into this pair of eyes. And maybe there's a pair of eyes that you haven't looked deeply into for a very long time. And you need to do that. He goes on in verse 1. He keeps going. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats. Now, saying, hey, goat head is not a real compliment in our day. But in that culture, when a large herd of goats came down a hill, they would wind around it in a way that looked striking and appealing from a distance. It's a way of saying, I, I like your hair that it's thick and it's wavy. I like the way that it curls. I like the way that it wraps around you. He goes on and he says, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Now, what's the twin deal there? Does she like have too many teeth? Is she like jaws or something? Now, just think back to that day for just a moment. Life on that day, no dentist, no orthodontist, no toothpaste, there's no braces. It was a very bad millennium for teeth. Everybody was missing teeth, it was pretty common. But her teeth were lovely. They were white, brilliant. And there was a lower tooth for every upper tooth. And we take that for granted, don't we? I'm not making this up. Isn't that a lot more appealing? When there are uppers for all the lowers and lowers for all the uppers? It's much more attractive, isn't it? That's where the twin thing comes in. All right, then in verse three, he compliments her neck. He says, your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. The neck has always been seen as a symbol of strength. Even in our day, we'll say something like, her head won't be easily turned by somebody that comes along. No. There's just an elegant strength there that's expressed in the neck. Now let's look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. And that is where we're going to cease today. <laughs> because this is the place where the man's pulse begins to race. He's not just taking body inventory here, no. The launch sequence has begun. <laughs> He's using imagery that's deeply compelling to a Middle Eastern male's heart and mind. So here's what I'll ask you to do. Read the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, however you call it. Uh, read it on your own this week. It is incredibly specific. And it's just being in the Bible shows its value in God's eyes. It's a celebration of romantic love, of emotional love, of covenant love, of forever love. And it's especially beautiful if you love creative wordplay. And God values all this, and he values it deeply. Now, I personally, I enjoy poetry very, very much. And in chapter 8, it's got some of the most beautiful poetry about love that anyone has ever, ever written. Here's just a short excerpt. Here's what it says. Chapter 8. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. What beautiful, beautiful words of love. So read this book and just see how silly are the accusations that the Bible is a prudish book for prudes. What an ignorant thing to say. Now, the Bible gives voice to all areas of our lives. 
and we would do well to take a deep dive into God's word, into one story, okay? All right, remember, we only get together publicly one time per month, and next Sunday is that time. So prioritize it in your schedule above everything else, and let's celebrate God's presence all together next Sunday night, 6 p.m., Orlando Museum of Art. Looking forward to seeing you there. Let me just pray and bring this to a close. Uh, our Father God, we thank you so much for your word and the celebration of love that we read today. Help us, Lord, to read this fully on our own time, Lord, in ways that allow you to speak to us about your love for us and to encourage us and challenge us where we need to express love to others in ways that honor you. So help us with this, Lord. We know that you can, and we believe that you will. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, and thank you for spending time with us today online. I look forward to seeing you next Sunday night. Until that time, let me leave you with this. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and remember, the God who came still comes, and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. See you soon.